Matthew chapter 16 this morning. We um, have, for the last uh, several weeks, we've been in a, a series. Uh, it doesn't really have a, a title. It's more of a theme, and, and the theme is acrostic. And uh, what we've been looking is different aspects of the Christian life, uh, certain things, and we've been uh, looking at certain words that we can use to help us learn these, these truths about these different things. And so this morning, we're going to kind of continue that. And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the church. Now, if I was to ask uh, people to define for me the church, we would get all kinds of different definitions. And we're going to talk about some of those in a moment. But this morning, I'm not interested in our definition of the church. Uh, we're going to understand what God's definition of the church is. And then we're going to look at what that church should look like. And so this morning, if you're here... And, and you're a part of this church, then this message is applicable for you, okay? And so I hope all of us will, will buy in and really get in uh, to the message this morning. So if you have your Bibles open in Matthew 16, I'm going to ask if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 is the first mention of the church in Scripture. And it comes on the revelation of Peter when uh, Jesus had been uh, had asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And, and he got various answers from the disciples. And then he stops and says, but who do you say I am? And it's during this response from Peter that we hear for the first time Jesus's word, the church. So if you look at it there in Matthew chapter 16, it says in verse 15, but you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Let's pray. God, today I pray that you'd bless the reading of your word, and now as we spend some time this morning examining it, I pray that I would decrease, and that your spirit living in me would increase, and that the words would be shared today would be yours and not mine. And Father, they will find the place you have for them in our hearts and our lives, and that we would respond how you lead us to respond according to the movement of your spirit in our lives through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, over the years, a lot of changes has taken place in the local church, especially in the, the, in the aesthetics of the church. I mean, if you look at the churches today, our church's uh, buildings have come a long way from what we would call the catacombs of the first century church. All right, and, and the catacombs is basically, that's where the first century church uh, would meet when they started being persecuted. Uh, it could have been in a cave, it could have been underground, it could have been in someone's home. But if you look at our church buildings of today, uh, you can see that, that through church history, um, the meeting places of the church have changed dramatically. I, I mean, I often ask myself, what would... What, 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 what would Peter or the disciples think if they walked into a modern church? Like, I think 
they would go, what is this? Not that this is bad. It's different, okay? It's different than probably what they're used to. And so we've, we've seen these changes take place. And I want you to know that the church, in the changings of the aesthetics of the building, um, has, to have, has had to maneuver through some really rocky and rough waters. I, I will tell you this, one of the main ingredients of church problems and church fightings and church splits is in the aesthetics of the church. I have seen and heard more churches split over carpet color and paint on the wall than over any theological issue. And so it, it's it sometimes when you get out and you want to uh, make some changes in the aesthetics of the building, it can cause problems. And so the church has had to undergo these because if you look you know, at the catacombs and then into the early church buildings and then into the great massive uh, cathedrals that have been built throughout the centuries and into modern day church buildings, it's just a lot different. It's changed over the course of the time. But I want you to ask this question. What is the church supposed to look like? Now, this is where I want to draw a very important distinction, and it's imperative that we understand this simple yet very profound truth. The church is not the building. Okay? If you don't get anything else from my message, you need to get that. Okay? The church is not the building. The church is the people that are within the building. Years ago, I was at a pastor's conference in, in Enon Association, and it was back when uh, there was talk uh, about some uh, different... It, it, it was back when there was some talk of churches possibly losing uh, their, their uh, tax-exempt status, and, 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 and the, the government could come in and lock churches' doors uh, for political reasons and things. And we were talking about this one day, and one of the pastors said... You know, we just need to make sure we're real smart so that um, the, the government can't come and shut our church. And I'll never forget my pastor, who, if you want to know why he's such a giant in my life, it's because of statements like this. He said, they can come padlock our church building all they want, but they can't stop us from meeting if they even tried. Because the building is not the church. The people is the church. And if the government shows up and padlocks our doors, we'll just sit out in the grass and study the Word of God. They cannot keep us from doing that. And, and so I remember in some of these things, and, and that's really important because we sometimes get really upset in the church about the aesthetics of a building, but that's not really what constitutes the church. The people make up the church. And so the bigger question is, is not what, sh what does our building need to look like, the question is, what do the people need to look like? Because over the course of the last 2,000 years, the building styles and colors have changed. But the aesthetics of the people, according to God's word, should never change. What I mean by that is, is the church people of today should look just like the church of 2,000 years ago. Now, I'm not talking about in the way we dress. Obviously, we don't wear robes all the time. Or sandals. And I've thought about that because sometimes a robe and sandals up here would be a lot cooler than anything else. Because it gets hot up here on stage. I'm not talking about in the way we dress. I'm talking about in the way we live. Our lives should match up with the lives of the church from the past 2,000 years. Because the aesthetics of the people should never change. 
And so this morning, as we look at this idea of church that Jesus established in Matthew 16, when he established the church on the foundational principle that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter's confession, Jesus said, I'm going to establish my church on that. And so this morning, what I want to do is take the word church, and we're going to look at what the church should look like. Again, not the building, but the people, okay? And so as we get through this this morning, uh, we're going to look at lots of different texts, but again, it's an acrostic. And so we're going to start with the letter C. The letter C in the word church, firstly, needs that we need to understand that we are called. The first mark of the body of Christ, the church, is that we are called out. The church is called out. Now, if you look at Matthew 16, 18, when, when Jesus said that I say that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church, the word that is translated church in English is the Greek word ecclesia, and it literally means, and this is what you need to hear this this morning, the word church literally means an assembly of people who have been called out to assembly. The word church literally means a group of people who have been called out to assembly. In the times of Christ, what would happen is there'd be someone that would go around and it could have been uh, with a horn or it could have been with an announcement and they would call out groups of people for assembly. The church is a called out group. Now, this idea of being called out is, is very well developed and fundamental in the New Testament. Listen to some scripture that talks about this. In John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one comes to me unless the Father first draws him to me. And then in John 15, Jesus said this, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you, I called you to go and produce fruit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24 says, He who calls you is faithful. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race. As a church, we are called out by God. Now that's a really a humbling thought and incredible thought when you think about it. The God who is the creator of the universe, who's the creator of all that we see, the God of the Old Testament who performed all those miraculous things we read about, who sent his son to die for our sins, has called us to himself. What a, what a humbling thought that the almighty, majestic God of the universe calls you and I to himself. Now, how does he call us? This is the source of contention in the church today. Because some would say, well, not everybody's been called. Actually, if they read John chapter 16, they'll find that that calling comes through the Holy Spirit. And that Jesus said when he left and went back to the Father, he would send the Holy Spirit to convict the hearts of man, all men, of sin, righteousness, and judgment so that they can be called by God to himself. Jesus said, some said, well, Jesus, uh, God's, Jesus says that no one can come unless the Father draws him. 
That's true. But then Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. You can't have one without the other. And how do you do that? According to John 16, is through the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that's really important when we get a little bit further because another aspect of our church, of being the people, is not being too prideful of ourselves. But it is a very humbling thought to know that God has called us out. No wonder we sing songs like Marvelous, Infinite, Matchless Grace or songs like Amazing Grace because the church is called out. Now, I want you to note something with me about this point in particular. That also means that if we're called out, that means we're called out of something, and what we've been called out of is the world that we live in. The church has been called out of the world, meaning that though we live in the world, we are no longer to be of the world. And if you want a verse of scripture on that, you can write this down. I'm not going to quote it, but it's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, that specifically tells the people to come out from among the people. So we have been called out. Though we still live in this world, we've been called to live outside of it. Okay, And so that's the first mark of the church is called out. And if you're here this morning, you say, I don't know what it means to be called out by God. The, the way that works is, is through his Holy Spirit. He begins to work in your life and to reveal to you that you're a sinner, that you're, that you're not living according to his standard, and that if something doesn't change, then you're going to die and be judged because of your sin. And so your only hope is to turn to God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, who's come. And when you do that, you've been called. The calling is for everyone, but you have to observe the call for it to be applied to you. The same as it would be in an assembly. They can sound a horn, and it's for everyone that that was intended for. But until those people came out of their homes and responded to the calling, then it was not effective in their life. The same is true for you. God has called all of us to salvation, but we have to respond to that call for it to be effective in our life. And if you're here this morning, you can attend a church, you can join a church, you can be involved in a church, but until you've been called out of the world by the Holy Spirit of God and you've responded, then you're not a part of the church. So that's the first thing is we are a called people. The second thing is, and the letter H means that we are a holy people. Now when I say holy, I'm talking about H-O-L-Y, not holy as in got holes all through us. We are holy people. Now, I want you to hear real quick 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, and also 1 Peter 2, 9. I quoted both of them already, but I want you to listen. But as the one who calls you is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct, for as it is written, be holy because I am holy. And then in 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, what does that word holy mean? If you look at the word holy in the Greek that we get the word holy from in English, it literally means to be set apart. That's what holy means, to be set apart. Okay. Now, when God used this term holy that Paul's quoting or Peter's quoting in 1 Peter 1, he's actually quoting back from Leviticus chapter 11 and Leviticus chapter 19 
when God told the people of Israel that they were his chosen people and that they were to be distinct and he asked them to be holy, what he's telling them is that they are to live distinct or separate lives. They are to be set apart from the rest of people. As God's chosen nation, he called them to be set apart from all other people groups and he gave them specific regulations to govern themselves so that people would see them and know that they were different. Now, when Peter repeats the Lord's words in 1 Peter 1.16, he's talking to the church. He's talking to believers. And so what he's telling us is that as believers, we need to be set apart from the world and unto the Lord. That's what it means to be holy. Holy is to be set apart from the world and set apart to God. And this in it lies one of the major issues in the American church today. Holiness. To be set apart from the world and to God. If you look in a lot of our churches and if you look in a lot of our people inside that make up the church, you will see little to no distinction between them and the world. And it's uncomfortable and it's unpopular to preach to the church that they need to be different. You need to be set apart. You need to be different. I, I, I'm thankful for some of the pastors I've sat under for many reasons, uh, but the pastor I grew up under, he used to tell his son and daughter every time we went and done anything, he would always tell them, remember whose child you are. And I always thought he was talking about him. I did. I always thought he was saying, remember, your dad's a preacher, so live that way. He wasn't. At our baccalaureate service, when I graduated, he explained what he meant. He was reminding his kids that they belong to God and they need to live in that manner. They needed to live lives worthy of their calling as God's children to remind them they are different and therefore they need to live differently. And I'm thankful for that in my life and it's something that I try to apply because we are called to be different. We're not called to be like the world. We are called to be holy. But holiness is not a popular concept in our church. Years ago when I served at First Baptist Ada, our, our pastor asked each and every one of us on staff to give a devotion over the word holy or holiness. He was really struggling with some things going on in our church. And when I did my devotion, I did it on holiness is for us. Not just the people in the church, but it was for us as a staff that we are called to be holy too. That we, you don't expect something of your people that you, in fact, are not living out in front of them. Now, it's not letting the people off the hook, but it's also reminding them that it's our obligation too, not just to preach holiness, but to live holiness. And I got some really awkward looks in that devotion. I had people that did not want to hear that, and within a couple months, it was very clear why. We had one staff member that was fired for uh, having an affair in the church. We had another staff member that was fired for inappropriate conduct with a student. And then we had two other staff members that went to the pastor and admitted to them him that they were not even supporting the church financially. They were working for the church, and they were not giving to the church. Yeah, it's no wonder that we got awkward looks from the staff about talking about being holy, and it's for us when they're not in any way, shape, or form living holy lives. But the church is to be holy, and that's a message we all need to hear more of. We are called to be set apart. We're called to be different. 
The, the you in the word church, moving on, means that we are to be a unified people. We are, one of the marks of the church is unity. We are called to be unified. Now, it is sad that oftentimes the church is known more for their arguing and feuding and even their splits than they are from their unity. When we lived in Sulphur, um, I'd hear people in our community talk about the exodus. And when I first moved there, I honestly thought they were talking about Moses and the story of Israel. And as I stayed a little longer, no, there is an actual instance in Sulphur that's known as the Exodus. And it's where one Sunday morning about 100 people in one church stood up at the beginning of service, walked out the doors, and about six blocks away and into another church. They didn't wait till after church. They got up at the beginning of service in this big display, and they, in a great exodus, left and joined another. And the church that they left, I just happened to serve in about 20 years later. But guess what we were still known as? The church of the exodus. When there's no unity in the church, Splits and fights are going to happen. And it's sad that in our culture, sometimes there's more unity in worldly groups than there are in the local church. But make no mistakes, God has called his church to be a unified people. Now, I can give you lots of scripture on this. They're on the board. There's some of them in your bulletin there. Um, But I'll just remind you of Jesus' prayer in John 17. In Jesus' prayer in John 17, a recurring theme of his prayer is for his people to be unified. That should be enough. The fact that Jesus prays to God for us that we would be a unified people. The church is called to be unified. I want you to know the body of Christ can accomplish great things when we work together, but we don't accomplish much when we're divided. We need to be unified. Now, I I, want to say this. Are there times where unity can't be reached in the church. Yes. Unfortunately, there is. But they're over doctrinal issues, not preferences. Make sure we understand that, church. If someone joined our church and got a following within our church that started believing that there was any other way to heaven other than Jesus Christ, we would not be able to stay unified. The church would have to stand up and say, that is an anti-Christ doctrine. The church, our church, will not follow that doctrine. You see what I'm saying? It, It has to be over foundational doctrinal truths. But even still, the church that understands and focuses on Scripture has to be unified together in their approach of that. And so, yes, there are times where the church can't be unified, but it's always over doctrinal issues, not preferences. And I want you to know, when the church keeps the main thing, the main thing, when I say the main thing, the main thing, I'm talking about the gospel. Because there's a lot of other things that are really just preferences, and I think some of them are important, but really the main thing in the church is the gospel. And if the church keeps the main thing, the main thing, then and strives for unity in the church, God can use that church to do great things. 
And God has called us to be unified, not to be people of disunity. We, we had a gentleman in a church, and I think he had went to, uh, he had moved away by the time I got there. But um, when I went to this church as their music minister, I got, uh, I don't, it wasn't unanimous, but it was close. And uh, one of our, uh, my, my pastor come up to me and uh, he said, just so you know, you'd, uh, you'd had one more no vote if so-and-so had been here. And I said, really, why is that? And he said, because he was against it. And I said, what do you mean that? I don't even know this guy. I've never met him. He said, doesn't matter. If it was in the church and it was for a vote, he is against it. And that's what he told him when he came to be their pastor. He got one no vote. And as they were doing the greeting line, this one guy came through and shook his hand and said, just so you know, I'm the one that voted no. Because if we bring it up in this church, I'm against it. Because God doesn't desire for any of anything to be completely in unity. And I looked at him and said, please tell me you corrected him on that. Because actually God desires for his church to be unified. And he tells us not to be the source of disunity. But I've been amazed in, in my experience in churches that I've had people in churches come and tell me they know people that used to be that way. And that's just not the way we're supposed to be. We are to strive for unity. And sometimes that means putting our own preferences, our own desires, our own thoughts on some things aside and realizing this is a preference, this isn't a theological issue, let's move on. We, we, by the way, we did that as a church right after I moved here, if y'all don't know. See, we had someone call... I have no idea who it is, so I'm not calling anybody out because I have no idea. But I know we loaned our church tables to the school for a banquet. And at the next business meeting, someone had called and said, I thought we voted not to do that. We weren't going to donate our tables. And I, we kind of talked about that for a few minutes. And I remember Ivan, it was Ivan. Ivan, I'm going to call you out. Ivan said, this isn't even an eternal matter. Why are we even talking about it? And we moved on. We did. I mean, that, that happened right after I came here. And, and I have no idea who grabbed. I don't, I don't care who it was. But I remember thinking, that's what I mean. That's a preference. It's a table. If it breaks, we'll buy a new one. If we can't afford to buy a new one, we'll sit on the floor. You see what I'm saying? It, it's a preference. It's not a doctrinal issue. Okay? And, and so the church needs to be unified on, on the serious things. But on the other things, we need to have some room for some give and take when it's not a doctrinal matter. So that's unity. The R, and I'm trying to finish this up real quick. The R is that we are to be rejoicing. The church should be marked by rejoicing. Now, there are a lot of reasons today that people rejoice. I mean, birth of a child, a graduation, a new job, a new house, clean bill of health, um, uh, when your favorite team wins a championship or or any of those things. When, when something good happens that we enjoy, we, we tend to rejoice about those things. And there's no doubt people rejoice when something good happens. I mean, you, you just watch around. You see um, a, a team win a, a, a championship and just wait till the news comes on and they're going to talk about all the people that are out in the streets and rejoicing and having a good time because their team won a championship. Now, I, I, I want you to know that, that rejoicing is a good thing but no one should rejoice more than the church. No one has anything more to rejoice for than the church does. Well, why, why should we be rejoicing so much? And why is it that no one should rejoice more than the church? Because of what Jesus did for us. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That right there is enough for us to rejoice more than anyone else. He didn't wait for us to clean our mess up. He didn't wait for us to, to, to figure this out on our own. He sent Jesus to die for us while we were in our sin. And that in and of itself should be enough to rejoice. We have been miraculously saved from sin and judgment. We have been set free to live for him. And that ought to make us rejoice. But sadly, many times the world rejoices more than we do. And I'm not just talking about when we sing. It's not just about music. It's, it's about an aura. I, I mean, I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's kind of sad when sometimes you come into a church. And I've been guilty of this because there's so much going on. But sometimes you look at people and there's smiles on their face. and You can tell they're glad, they're happy. And then there's others that just have this scowl. And you're like, when was the last time you smiled? And they're like, oh, I don't know. And they can't tell you the last time we smiled. And I'm talking about a, a, an aura of rejoicing, not just in our singing, but just in our persona. We have, God has given us so much. We, it doesn't matter what the world throws at us. We can smile. You want to know why we can smile? Because death can't touch us. And it's not because of what we did. It's because of what he did. We are to be a people of rejoicing. And Paul says it like this in Philippians 4.4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it. Rejoice. Be happy. You're saved. You're, listen, church. You're saved. Re rejoice. We, we need to smile more and rejoice more. We have something to praise. We have something to rejoice about. And we need to think about that when we come in. Now, I'm not saying there's not times where we don't need to come in and be reverent. I'm, I absolutely agree there's times that we ought to be reverent and things like that. But it ought to still be with rejoicing within. There is a way to be reverent and still be rejoicing. Like, I want you to know, when, when we take the Lord's Supper, I am reverent, but I am inside, I am rejoicing at what we're doing because of what it means. And so, yes, reverence is one thing, but it shouldn't be at the expense of our rejoicing. Then the last two things, the, the last C, is that we are to be compassionate. The church should be marked by compassion. Now, there's scripture, Ephesians 4.32 talks about being compassionate to one another. Uh, Colossians 3.12 and 13 tells us to, to put on compassion. And, and so there's verses about that. But the fact of the matter is that the church ought to be compassionate to each other and to the lost. And our greatest example of that is our Savior. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, he must first deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow me. That idea of following him means to live like he lived, to do what he did, to follow him. And when you look at Jesus, Jesus was filled with compassion towards people. He was filled with compassion with his disciples even though they didn't always agree with him, and even though they often did things he told them not to do. He was filled with compassion to the multitudes who were following. Even when he was tired and was withdrawing to rest, he looks up and they're still coming to him. Instead of telling his disciples, I'm tired, send them away, he goes out and meets them with compassion. I think sometimes we lose compassion in the church. What, I'm, what I mean by that is sometimes we're known more for shooting our wounded than we are for 
being compassionate towards our brothers and sisters who are caught up in something. And we need to be compassionate. Does that mean we don't call out sin for sin? No, we do. But calling out sin for sin should not be done in a way that despises that person or is rejecting of that person. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us when we go to people that have sin, we are to do it in a spirit of love with reconciliation as the goal. And so the only way to do that is with compassion. It's, it's hard to go to someone in love with the spirit of reconciliation if you're not compassionate towards them. And the world, they definitely need, we need to be compassionate towards them. And I'm telling you, I've said this before, but one of the mistakes the church makes is expecting the lost world to act like the church. And when they don't, we get irritated. Why should we be irritated? They're not the church. They can't act the way we're supposed to act. And if they can, <laughs> then we have a problem. So we need compassion. If we're going to reach the lost world, we have to be compassionate on the lost world. That doesn't mean, again, that doesn't mean that we don't call sin, sin. It doesn't mean that we call people to a standard of holiness and all those types of things. But we need to do it with a spirit of compassion, realizing that they just need Jesus. And then the last one is the, is the H, and it stands for humble. The church is to be marked by humility or humbleness. We live in a culture that humility is often not considered a good quality. Those with humility are often overlooked while those who are prideful tend to get all the attention. But the church is to be marked by humility. Listen to a few verses of Scripture, and then we'll close out. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, I urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received with all humility. Colossians 3, 12, I mentioned it earlier. It says, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. 1 Peter 5, 5, my last one, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why are we to be marked by humility and not pride and arrogance? There are two reasons. One, because God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And number two, Scripture teaches us that we are no better than anyone else. Do you know the only difference between you and a lost person? You are just a sinner saved by grace. And sometimes if you don't remember what grace is, let me remind you. That's God's undeserved, unmerited favor on your life. That's the only difference between you and I and the lost world. We're sinners saved by grace. And therefore, we have no reason to look down on anyone else. There's no reason to think of ourselves as better than anyone else. We're not any better. We're just saved. Thank God we're saved. But we're not saved by what we do. We're saved by what Jesus did. And they can't be saved by what they do. They can only be saved through what Jesus did. And so we need to stay humble towards others, towards God, and towards ourselves. So what does the church look like? 
If you're talking about the building, it can look any number of ways. It's all in your preference. But when you're talking about the people, the people are called people. They are holy people. They are a unified people. They are a rejoicing people. They are a compassionate people. And they are a humble people. Those marks should always be evident in the life of the body of Christ, the church.